the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to neuroscientist Linda Shaw. Linda is an international professional speaker, and her expertise in energy led to receiving the esteemed Professional Speaking Award of Excellence in 2017, the highest accolade for UK professional speakers as chosen by their peers. She has also presented TEDx Talks, written multiple articles for Forbes, and appeared on several podcasts, radio, and even TV. She is the author of Your Brain is Boss, providing business leaders with insights into how to develop influence, creativity, and work satisfaction. Linda has also published a children's book called Beat the Bullies, Use Your Brain, to help explain the difficult emotional issues being faced by so many of today's youngsters. In this episode, we discuss how the brain changes behavior and how behavior changes the brain, how to replace habits that no longer serve us, and how to put the brain in the most efficient and effective state. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Linda, to get started, when you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Um, I want to say better control over my destiny, but I think the word control is often misunderstood so rather than say control of my destiny, maybe manage it better. But of course, self-reliance, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly autonomous and as self-reliant as I possibly can be. But in actual fact, we, we're not in the old way of saying an island. You know, we, we are affected by lots of things and quite rightly so. Um, and so, yeah, as self-reliance to me probably means as me managing myself in the best possible way. Absolutely. So I'll be honest, I was really excited to talk to you. Um, I was hoping that I could be a little bit cheeky and insert some of my own questions because, you know, I'm always interested in the world of neuroscience. Um, but I definitely think the things that I might ask you are going to build into the questions we said we were going to talk about. So one of the things we said we would talk about is how the brain changes behavior and in turn, then how behavior changes the brain. So maybe you can give us a bit of an introduction, what that really is, and then we can just explore it further. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> basically, in neuroscience, we didn't understand the um, effect of neuroplasticity until recently, uh, relatively recently, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years, something like that, quite recently. Um, and we thought that once you, the brain you were born with is the brain that um, stays with you apart from the, the, clear, the clearly the development it, through childhood and teenage years, and then that was it until you died. But of course, now we realize that the neuroplasticity of the brain is absolutely phenomenal, quite astonishing. So therefore, it means that um, our brain changes according to a lot of factors. Those factors are clearly what we call bottom up, which is our DNA and so forth. The factors from top down are things like our thoughts, beliefs, and um, that, that sort of high level thinking. 
And then, uh, then uh, our social and environmental upbringing and indeed whatever's going on in the outside world as well. So all of these things will influence the brain, which means that how we behave and, and respond to these things will determine how our brain rewires. And so therefore, our brain changes our behavior and our behavior changes the brain. And once we understand that, we then realize how, how crumbs we've actually got we can decide how our brain wires. We can, we can choose our behavior accordingly, which is really powerful. Yeah, I think so too. So what I wanted to ask you was just, you know, just while you were saying that, talking about neuroplasticity, talking about the brain, just in a general sense, one of the things that I wanted to get your take on is that we now know, for example, that neurons are not just in our brain and that neurons are in other parts of our body. What is your take on that? And why would that be? And how do you see that playing out in this idea of behavior change? Well, one of the, um, the, the biggest growth areas in, in neuroscience, of course, is the gut brain health um, and the enteric nervous system. Why the enteric nervous system has, or the gut has 100 million neurons that are incredibly influential and that influence how our brain more than our brain influences our gut is quite amazing by the vagus nerve, of course, that lovely long nerve in the body that does so much. And, and why would that be? Now, there are theories, but the jury is still out. As with um, neuroscience is very much an embryonic science, so we're discovering all of the time. But um, we, it is one theory is that when we were nothing but a blob, um, this blob was stuck on a rock and it had it, it, the neurons were in this blob. And um, then we, it, it tried to survive by catching things that swam by. And then it realized, well, actually, actually not cognitively, of course, but it thought mm, not so good for survival here. So detached from rock and then started to catch food. And then we, it, it, that blob became what we now know as, as human beings. So why would that blob, which was originally the gut, why is the gut still so important to us when we've got this delicious head brain going on? And we actually really are not sure. But what we do know is that there is an awful lot more to learn about it. And equally, we know that, it's that gut health is now incredibly vital to everything else that goes on in our body. So that's very interesting, just talking about gut health. Um, I had a friend who was just struggling all the time with headaches and also he was feeling depressed. And as he started changing his diet and taking more probiotics and getting his gut health more healthy, and I think a lot of what was happening was he was eating the wrong things and so on, that changed a lot of things for him. It improved his mood and it also lessened the amount of headaches that he was having, which is, which is fascinating if you think about it. Oh, absolutely. Um, what the, the thing is, you see, there is no one size that fits all. And that's what we have to remember. This is very much down to the individual. So we read in magazines and newspapers and um, anything else about, oh, my goodness, goodness me, the latest diet is and we've got to do this for gut health and we've got to do that for gut health and whatever health, whichever, whatever one's talking about at that moment. But it does depend on the individual. We used to say with food that, you know, we need a, a high fiber diet, lots of muesli, um, lots of nuts and things. But if you've got diverticulitis, that will kill you. It'd be terribly painful and it'll kill you 
might have met, not necessarily um, practically kill you, but you know, in in kill you in terms of pain. Um, so it does depend on the individual. So when it comes to gut health, um, clearly it's extremely important, absolutely, and will affect our our mood, our headaches, our emotions, everything else. But we do need to perhaps go to somebody who's a nutritionist if we are really wanting to investigate what it is indeed we can eat and drink healthily and what we can't. So, you know, being a scientist you know, I kind of want to get your take on this, right? So for a long time, people might be unfamiliar with this, this idea of the Cartesian dualism, where we separate our head from our body. And that's, you know, I can kind of get that sense wherever I go. And I look at our educational system, where it tends to be very head laden, it's almost a mistrust of the body, as the body is a natural intelligence. What is your take on that? How do you see the body's role in changing behavior? I actually don't know how you can separate these things, to be honest with you. We're, we're, we're one human being. Um, we, we know that the brain affects our physical health and our physical health affects our brain. So how can we detach that? Clearly, we need to in terms of, of research because we can't, a researcher can't be an expert in everything ever. So we need to boil everything down to, um, to small, small studies, if you like, or small areas to study. Um, and so we become an expert in a particular thing. But we do need to collaborate all that expertise so that we um, can understand the human being as a complete entity, mm. including the diff- you know, bringing the brain together with the body and, and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I'm asking that is because what I've been working on my own side of my own research and been playing a lot with lately is what I've noticed is as I'm working with people, there tends to be a lot of sympathetic dominance. So people seem to be running hot all the time. There's a lot of reasons for that, you know, just the stress of life. And we could probably also talk about COVID as being part of that as well. And what we have had success is helping them to change their relationship as you noted, rather than control, but learn to manage the inner state more effectively. And one way that I found that's very effective is through teaching people breath work and getting them to focus on their breath so that they can engage, you know, the the parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system, that calming side, the rest and digest side, rather than always running on that sympathetic nervous system. And that's not to say that we don't need that because it's, it's crucial. Uh, we need that part that activates us and, and gets us to take action. But I think a lot of people are way beyond just what would be the acceptable kind of norm of stress. I mean, how do you feel? How does, how does that sound to you? Does that kind of make sense to you? It makes huge sense. We need, to, we need the parasympathetic nervous system to work as well. Um, and we, we, at the moment, as we know, you know, it's been it, we've been living this um, pandemic now for six or seven months here in the UK and Ireland. Um, but um, we we know that it, it starts off being very stressful, and then we, the body seems to um, get used to. Uh, and loosely speaking get used to that level of stress so that becomes the baseline and then something else happens and then the baseline gets a bit higher and then then something else happens and the baseline gets a bit higher then we, people are more worried now about the economic ramifications of what's going on mm-hmm. as well as the mental health um, ramifications as well so that the, the, these base layers are going up and up and up and the sympathetic nervous system is is really working overtime along with the the stress the hormones and chemicals as well so we to 
and, and, and we know that if we are living in a chronic stressful situation, we will get high blood pressure. We, we may get some cancers. We may get heart disease. We know that we will not sleep properly. We will know we'll not eat properly. We won't we'll eat too much. We're not eating enough. We know that we won't feel motivated. So dopamine is, is, is affected. Serotonin is affected. All of these other things that are going on. And we also know that in a chronic, a chronic stressful situation where um, cortisol is running amok for, for a long length of time, we can become very physically very, very poorly. So we need to um, do things to help ourselves to break the cycle. And it is a choice. Mm. It is a choice. And once we understand we have that choice, we can then use it. So if we, if we have a choice, that means we choose something and then there's an outcome and that outcome will produce a feeling and then the feeling will actually dictate on the next choice and we get this this vicious cycle this hamster wheel that we're on mm. but if we do something like you have suggested with breath work or something where we are giving ourselves some time off or some respite from all of this madness um, and therefore engage the parasympathetic nervous system and allow the feel-good neurotransmitters to work a bit better, dampening down the effect of cortisol and so on and so, so forth, then we will break that cycle. Mm. And with that, that respite, the other thing you see, this is what really worries me, Rodney, is that when we are in this stressful situation, when we are driven by fear, with the, what we do is we put the blinkers on to concentrate on the perceived threat. Of course we do. That is how we survive. We have to concentrate on the perceived threat. But whilst we're doing that, we are, can't concentrate on anything outside of that. So we can't be creative. We can't be innovative. We can't think clearly. So how on earth can we get ourselves out of the pickle we're finding ourselves in, in a minute at the moment if we are focusing so much on this, um, as I say, the perceived threat? Mm. And one of the ways is to give yourself some respite to get off the hamster wheel, to get off the vicious cycle. And breath work is a really good way of doing that. You're talking about that kind of that focus, right? Where we're just completely focusing on the problems all the time. But there's also the, the if I understand it correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also a physical change there just in eyesight, right? Eyesight tends to go very central to people kind of miss everything else. They don't have peripheral vision. But that also, that kind of concentrated focus on a problem all the time also elevates the sympathetic nervous system, doesn't it? I mean, it also ramps it up. So there's something to be said about you know, just like you said, taking a step back. And one of the ways that I found that's been very useful for me being on the Isle of Man is that it's a beautiful island. There's lots of places that you can go where you can be in the outdoors, which I feel like forces me to open up my gaze. It, it, you know, I'm using my peripheral vision, which then in turn is going to activate my parasympathetic nervous system. And then there's another way to do it, right? So it's not only just through breath work, but you can also, just by how you change the way that you look at things can also engage your parasympathetic nervous system. Totally. Absolutely. Totally. And that can go with anything that can go with you stroking a pet. Mm. It can go with you going, get, doing some exercise. It can anything where you are breaking that, um, that level of concentration that is needed, but not all of the time, because we've got to actually step away from it and think clearly. And I, and you know, and if we can get the brain in, in a alpha state as well, alpha is where the um, brain frequencies 
are very like to liken to light meditation. Now that can be from um, staring out of the window watching the rainfall. It can be um, any of those things where, you know, we, when you were at school, uh, you would stare out of the window and a teacher would say, will you stop staring out of the window? Will you pay attention in class? Actually, no teacher, let the child stare out of the window because their brain is working really well at that moment. Really, really well. That's where the creation comes in. That's where the innovation comes in. That's where the ideas come in. It's like when you just wake up in the morning and you're not quite awake and you're not quite asleep. And you're sort of in that scrummy place where it's, it's really rather yummy. And that's where your brain is in alpha frequency. And that's when all these ideas come into your head and answers to questions that you may be, be mulling over. So if we really do work more efficiently and effectively when we step out and off the hamster wheel, even if it's for a very short time, when we are, when we, it's not self-indulgent and we can step back on it again when we are really needed, but give yourself some breathing space so that you can actually think far in far greater breadth and width and depth so that you can actually fix, fix, fix things better. The two things that stood out for me there was, I was laughing when you said about staring out the window as a kid at school, that was me. <laughs> when, I, when I think back, I was like, wow, you know, actually, that's really true, right? I was actually thinking about that funny enough just the other day is that that was the time when I felt really the most relaxed, when you were in those moments where you were just kind of, you know, staring out the window and just lost in just moments of, you know, it almost felt like time disappeared is another way to describe yeah. it. The other thing you said about waking up in the morning and kind of being in that stage and if you can harness it, that's the creative time, right? As you're coming out of the sleep and you're just coming out of that point where you're totally relaxed. But what do we do? The first thing we do, what a lot of people do is reach over for their phone, which I think kind of just stops that whole process right away. Uh, my strong suggestion is don't put, take the phone into your bedroom. It really, really is. And I know some people use it as their alarm, but um, use an old fashioned alarm clock. Um, you know, so it's just, as soon as you start on that thing, you have stopped the efficiency and the effectiveness of that delicious moment. And that is a, such a waste, such a waste. It's a gift. It's a golden gift mm. to wallow in that. It's not self-indulgent. It's a way that you can help whatever situation you're in, you will come up with ideas and those for your loved ones as well. Also, there's that, that, that we were talking about, I guess it plays into this as well, is just doing nothing. I think that's where we also go wrong in this day and age. We always feel like we need to be busy doing something. Like people can't just, just sit still and be silent and be with themselves for just, just a few minutes. You know, you see, again, you know, people start feeling uncomfortable. They start reaching for their phone. I see this all the time. They just can't just sit there and just be with themselves for a couple of minutes as well. Oh, and I, I tell you what makes me smile when you've just said that. I, I, I use Apple technology and I have an iCalendar. And I don't know if you, you have an iCalendar, but of course you can, you can color code your different activities. And, and so you've got this various colors, about half a dozen different colors, and you've just fill up your calendar. I go into a panic when I see a white bit. <laughs> because it means I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I go, no, uh, Linda, calm down and breathe. It's good. It's good. The nothing is good. The little white bit on your eye calendar is good. It means that there's nothing happening. That's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. So coming back to neuroplasticity, what are we looking at in so far as, let's say I want to make a change and it's a positive change. What do we know? Is there any research to show how long that's actually going to take before I actually st start to see some inroads, like I can actually see that that change is 
taking hold? Is there a time frame for this or not really? Is it dependent on each person? The, I am very, very careful using any kind of measure. And the reason for that is, um, if you say to somebody, it's going to 20, take 24 days to replace a habit with something that's more beneficial but for, your, for you as a system, um, and then on you're really, really working on it for 24 days, and then 25, fifth day, it goes wrong, you're going to feel a failure. Mm. And I really don't buy into that. I really, really don't. So I would rather not talk about time frames because uh, it does depend on the individual. It depends on a huge amount of circumstances. But what I would rather talk about is um, the, it's the effort on a daily basis of keep trying. Mm. Baby steps, if you wish. Baby steps are fine, but just keep on, keep on keeping on doing it, whatever it is you want to <clears throat> want to replace um, what you want to replace with whatever you're doing, then that's exactly how it's going to work for you and at its best. That sounds very similar to what I'd suggest to my, my clients, you know, and I say to them as well, and I think this is something we don't do, is that we need to celebrate our small victories. There's a sense that, you know, if somebody set a goal for themselves and that's what they want to move towards, they're only going to celebrate. They're only going to say, hey, you know what, you actually achieved it when you actually achieve it. And not realizing that the process is equally important. It's not only important, it's the longest bit. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, why, not, why not celebrate the stuff that's taking you such a lot of time and, 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 not, and only celebrate this little tiny bit at the end, which is often, very strangely, a bit of a, um, a, bit of a non-event. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. When I'm in myself, when when my husband and I have been working on something that's really big and significant, something in particular about planning permission, it took ten years. And when it came to actually the the signing of papers, it was like, oh, is that it? But it's like, but yeah, yeah, that's what we've been working on for ten years, ten whole years. But of course, what we should have been doing is every every week, every Friday, right? What have we done? Have we have we have we got a step step further to this goal? If not, maybe look at it two weeks break. I, I doesn't matter, mm. but break it down because sometimes what you think you want when you get it is it can be a bit of a non-event. <laughs> That's very very true. So you're getting practical then for a second. Then how do we replace habits that we know that we feel no longer serve us? Replacing habits is. Uh, the hardest bit is recognizing what habits no longer serve us. That's the, that's the toughest part of the, of the whole thing um, because it's a habit, which means it's an unconscious processing. It's like a heuristics, a shortcut, you know, it's back there. We, we put it, we filed it away and we don't even know we do it. <clears throat> so um, let's take an example. Uh, you are now working from home. Surprise, surprise. And um, so you're working from home and uh, you are drinking more coffee than usual. And every time you have a cup of coffee, you um, have a biscuit. And you're not aware of it. You, you, you register the enjoyment of that first coffee in the morning. But then because you're working from home, you just keep going to the coffee machine or the kettle and you just, it, you're just not registering at all. It's because you're procrastinating because you're looking at the screen again. So, you know, so, so off you go, like, let's go. But So you, you do that. And then all of a sudden you get on the scales, you think, oh, crumbs, I'm five pounds heavier. Why, why am I five pounds heavier? Um, and then you think, 
And then you really do have to think what's going on. And then it dawns on you that you're drinking far more coffee, which means you're eating far more biscuits, mm. a habit that no longer serves you. So therefore you think, right, now I've, now I've identified it. Now I've got to replace it. And that's where it gets a bit easier. So you replace it with perhaps eating a carrot or a rice cake or something with your cup of coffee. Not a really good idea because that doesn't work so well, but maybe change the coffee. So you're either changing the reward or the, tr or the, or the trigger. Mm. So changing the coffee and maybe having a smoothie or a glass of water or a hot cup of water with a slice of lemon. You whatever it is, you're replacing it either with the trigger or with the reward by not having the biscuit but having something else or not having the coffee, having something else, which is the trigger. Then you, the secret is to enjoy it. So we have to engage the reward circuitry in the brain. Otherwise, we won't repeat it enough for in order it to be another habit to replace the last habit. So once we find we've found something we like, we replace it and we look forward to it, then we were more likely to repeat that and repeat it and repeat it. And that neural pathway will actually become the go-to, the default neural pathway that the brain goes to because the brain can be quite lazy in terms of... Um, Lazy is probably the wrong word. I'll give you the wrong idea here. It's not. It's an incredibly efficient, efficient system, mostly. But what I mean by lazy is it will go to default to the well-oiled pathways first. So if you are wanting to replace a habit, the new habit has to be well used in order for the, in order for the myelin to cover that, that, uh, that, that uh, neural pathway so that it's nice and smooth and everything is, is that's what the brain will default to that one. So that's how you replace it. Um, the old the old habit will still be there. It won't atrophy for some time, but you, that's why you really need to find something rewarding, so that you really want to keep practicing this new habit, and it will replace the old one that no longer serves you. Hmm. That's that's very useful. So while you were talking about that, it just kind of popped in my head. What I wanted to hear from you is, being a neuroscientist, why did you choose that? Like, what made you decide to become a neuroscientist? Um. I was a mature student uh, uh, doing my first degree, which was psychology and social anthropology. I didn't want to study psychology. I wanted to study social anthropology because I am a travel junkie in the old days, the good old days. Um, I'm a travel junkie and I like to um, communicate with the indigenous peoples around the world. And I've always wanted to understand why people do what they do. So social anthropology to me is this amazing topic. But because I had to do joint with psychology, I did, because I had small children to consider, so I couldn't go anywhere to university. I had to be quite local. And uh, two-thirds of the way through the course, I realised how social anthropology is so hard. It's like everything. It's a really hard subject. It's the world. And I'm a yes, but what if person. And my 2,000 word essay would only turn into 20,000 words and I'd be cutting it back. I mean, oh, gosh, this is too hard. And I realized that actually I was more suited to psychology. And then I chose to do a master's in psychology. And my supervisor was, I looked at his profile on the website of the, of the university. And at the very bottom, there was this word consciousness. Now, I've been reading about consciousness since I was 14. 
and I got so excited. His name was Michael. It is Michael. And I, um, I went to Michael and I said, Michael, I see that you are an expert in, in consciousness. And he said, well, yeah, one of the things. And this guy's a brilliant, he's a genius, and he's, he's just brilliant, absolutely everything. And consciousness was just one of the things. And I said, well, would you mind supervising me um, in a PhD and um, the, um, while I look at unconscious processing of emotion? And he said, yes. And I was so excited, I can't tell you. I ran to my car in the university car park because I was accepted to do a PhD in, in, in unconscious processing. So that's how it came about. Wow, that's pretty cool. Now, look, I'm also a mature student. I started really late. So in your, in your PhD, what was, the, what was the outcome, if you don't mind me asking, because I'm interested to find what you actually you know, found out at the end. What was the conclusion for you? Well, we had, um, I used fMRI scanning equipment and behavioral studies, and I looked at nine regions in the brain, and I, and I used uh, the, uh, the stimuli I used was these, these images, these photographs that have been um, measured, if you like, regulated by, oh gosh, tons of psychologists around the world and there are group there are about 800 photographs that psychologists use now um, and neuroscientists use so that we can actually check one another's work so we're using the same stimuli and I use these images and these images had a very very high emotional content or very low emotional content some were extremely nasty some were extremely beautiful um, and I, I plucked out a few I tested them and so on and so forth. And then I used these images where they were, they, you could not register that you were looking at anything at all because they were so fast and they were masked forward and backwards so that the processing of looking at that image was interrupted by the brain. So the brain wasn't consciously registering seeing these images. And the person they were exposed to these whilst in the fMRI scanning machine. And my results were that without a shadow of a doubt, several regions of the brain were very much activated when looking at emotional content below conscious awareness. That's really interesting, which I have a question for you then. When we talk about emotions, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding just in that word in itself. As far as I understand it, presently, one of the more predominant views on emotions is Lisa Feldman Barrett's approach, which is the idea of constructed emotions. Where do, where do you come in on this? What is your take on that? Constructed emotions. Now, emotion is, is quite an interesting word, as you're quite, quite rightly said, and it's, it is misunderstood and misconstrued. Um, some cultures only have 10 emotions. Mm. Other cultures have 100. So um, where do we sit with that? Um, is, is that? is that semantics? Is that about vocabulary? Um, because there's no doubt that when we feel and when we experience an emotion, it determines or can determine our behavior. Mm. And if, and we are also in a flux of several emotions um, in a very short space of time, we can, you can be looking at a film and you can be taken from happiness to sadness, to anger, to fear. You can go through the whole card of what we call of, of our vocabulary when it comes to emotion um, but then you then often, although these emotions are fleeting, um, what we then are often left with or sometimes left with is a feeling. And a feeling is an internal representation of that emotion. So and a feeling can last longer than emotion. So you can actually be feeling really crabby 
but um, you could experience several motion, emotions in that period of time. So it, it, it's, um, and the word emotion is a difficult word, especially in my field when I'm working with corporates and large businesses, because they go, oh my goodness, it's all that pink fluffy stuff. I'm not sure what I want to talk about. We want to make money. We want to save money. But in actual fact, of course, people buy stuff on the back of emotion. So yeah, that's interesting, right? So that, that is one of the conclusions, right? That this kind of sense that we make these rational decisions actually probably isn't true, right? Most of the decisions we are making, as you noted, are on the basis of how we are feeling. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and this has been shown hugely by Antonio Damasio, um, a very famous neuroscientist, eminent neuroscientist. He's got something called the gambling task. It's worth Googling if, if you're interested in it. Um, but he has shown over and over and over and over again that we make decisions way below conscious awareness based upon an emotional response. So I guess one, one of the things that I, I'm always interested in is you were saying, like, you know, in some cultures, they only have 10 emotions. Would we say, I mean, obviously, there's two ways to look at this, right? But one way is that I'm aware when I'm in a stressful situation that there are these physiological changes in my body the way that I might interpret that might be very different to somebody else where, for example, I might have the sense that this is actually telling me that I'm excited. Maybe I have to give a speech, for example, where somebody else just, you know, those same sensations get interpreted, interpreted as fear. So is that like one of the things that, that, that would, would generate what one person describes in one side as an emotion and somebody else might have a completely different picture of the same sensations? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's exactly what I do when I go on stage to as a speaker is I think, you know, the tummy butterflies are starting to go. And I just say to myself, this is going to be the best talk I have ever done. I'm excited. So yes, you can use that principle that you've just described to, to reframe things, but never, never forget that all emotions are useful. All emotions are as important as each other. So, you know, fear is good. It keeps us out of trouble. Um, there is nothing wrong with fear. Uh, we, we need to feel it, need to acknowledge it and need to do something about it, i.e. remove ourselves from what is frightening us if we can um, and then move on and not hold on to that because that can cause a lot of negativity and, and um, upset and unbalance the system. Yeah, I'm really happy that you brought that up because that's one of the things that I always put across when I'm working with people is that all emotions are helpful. It's interesting that you say that. I mean, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was on LinkedIn and there was an article by quite a well-known psychologist. And the article was something to the effect of how to deal with negative emotions. I just find that so problematic where we start defining certain emotions as good and certain emotions as bad. I think it's completely you know, out of context really is because as you noted, right? I mean, I need those physiological changes just before I go on stage so that I do give my best presentation. Yeah. You know, so it's not negative, it's required. I think that's the other part of it too, is we've got so bogged down with this idea of stress that now when we talk about stress, just generally our stress is bad, but actually again, stress is required to take action to move towards a goal if you didn't if you weren't stressed out you wouldn't get off the couch absolutely totally right um that's it's, you know stress in in a small amounts mm. is essential and brilliant keeps sharp keeps on our toes keep you know keep, keeps us motivated keeps us moving forward there's nothing wrong with it at all but it's like everything if, if stress 
then it then swamps our system. That is when we it is, is an issue. And equally, you know, you're quite right, positive and negative emotion. Um, I have used those terms in my thesis, but in actual fact, it, it's, it does give the wrong impression because it, just because um, a f- sadness, sup- uh, fear, anger are so-called negative emotions does not mean that they are, they are negative to have. Mm, yeah. um, they, they are highly positive and useful to have even though they're under the label of being a negative emotion so what do you what are your thoughts on when we're talking about emotions and i think this builds into this idea of positive and negative the other thing that i tend to see is that people are very black and white with their emotions so it's either good or bad right or it's you know i'm happy or i'm sad but there's something to be said for building a emotional vocabulary where you have more granularity over your emotions. And my experience is that's a much healthier way for you to approach it. So maybe I'm not really angry. I'm just frustrated. And knowing that difference is equally important because that does change how you interact with the situation that you find yourself in. I think that's right. And I know a little three-year-old who does that brilliantly. This little three-year-old, I heard him say to his mummy last night, mummy, are you getting angry? She said, no, I'm not angry. She said, oh, no, you're frustrated, aren't you? He's three. You know, he's three. So that he even recognises there's a grading here um, on, you know, there is no black or white. There is no polar ends to this. There is this, and equally, you can be, um, you can be frustrated, you can be extremely frustrated or slightly frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, within that, you still have this measure, if you like, or this this grading going from one to the other. Um, but uh, I do think we use, semantics are, are very powerful. And I do think we use words sometimes um, in an unhelpful way. And I think that's probably an example. Yeah, so building off that, one of the research studies I was just looking at recently was this idea of actually labeling the emotion that you're having. Because I think also what tends to happen is people have these emotional responses, but because they don't want to tend to it, they don't want to interact with it, they just almost just bypass it, they push it aside. And I think that's also not valuable because I think there's something to be said by being able to articulate exactly as, you know, how I feel. And that, again, you know, by being clear on what that is, it does change how you then interact with specific situations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, that's another tool for emotion is that they enable us to um, discuss what's troubling us. Um, and or, or indeed, what is what is the opposite in making us euphoric, if you like? But um, I, I do think we um, to not talk about these things is actually really dangerous. We know that research shows us over and over again. We know that. So if we could again, we're coming back to semantics. If you can actually vocalise how you are feeling, then um, you you will get everything into perspective in a be- in a better way. Yeah, you kind of hinted to that previously. I mean, society also dictates how we interact with the experiences that we're having. So talking about this from a man's point of view, and especially that many of my clients are men, one of the biggest issues that I have with them is that they have this inability to share how they're feeling. 
because coming from this very kind of dominant masculine society, the alpha male, which I can't stand, I hate that term, but you know, it's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to express my emotions because by doing that, it's seen as being a weakness rather than seeing it actually as a strength, you know? So people tend to, especially men and, and of course women too, but definitely in my work with men, they see it as a vulnerability and not as a strength. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think, uh, yeah, that there's, if we are talking, I mean, I'm very mindful of talking about gender uh, <clears throat> because it's, no, it's, you know, it's a minefield. Talking about this so-called male and female brain um, is a minefield because um, we have lots of different kinds of people in our society and that don't necessarily fall under the categories of stereotypical male and stereotypical female. And we need to respect that and understand it. Um, so I, I run away when people talk about gender. <laughs> I think, no, 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 please don't draw me into a gender debate. Um, however, you're, stereotypically, you're right. There are um, certain men in our society that find it very difficult to talk about how they feel. And, it, and they do see it as a weakness. Um, and that is, the way, that is the way they've been brought up. Um, that is the that's the nature nurture debate and this one's the nurture bit um so um and but equally you know there's another one in there and that is about people asking for help now that is not necessarily a gender issue at all um because i think that's maybe a cultural issue um but asking for help is seen as a weakness but first of all if you're asking for help and somebody is able to help you you're making them feel so good not in an, in an arrogant way, but because they're being altruistic, they're being kind, and we know that that puts the brain in, a, in, a, in an optimum state. Mm. But equally, if you have, if you, I mean, I years and years ago, um, my husband worked for a, a large um, IT company, and it was Wang, Wang Laboratories years and years ago, and um, they used to have these sales conferences, um, massive, huge um, global conferences where all the sales forces from around the world, they had about 30,000 staff, I think, all the sales forces came from around the world came into this huge ballroom, often in North America because they have the space. And um, they would have these incredibly opulent, extravagant parties for two or three days. And I used to go along, of course, yeah, yeehaw, I'll come, I'll play there. So I went along. But at one point, Dr. Wang, who was the founder of Wang Laboratories, became very poorly. He had throat cancer and um, he had to leave the board and things started to go a bit wrong. Well, very wrong with the company. And um, they were close to um, close to bankruptcy. And it was the it was going to what everyone thought was the final conference. And this it was predominantly men in those days with, with the salespeople and Everyone was writing their CVs. They were, they were ready to jump ship. And a very aggressive, lots of testosterone in that room on that day. Loads of, loads of anger. And I'm out of here. I'm doing this. All, all of that kind of talk. And then all of a sudden, completely unannounced, who walked on the stage but Dr. Wang? Little tiny man. And he, in a very, very gravelly voice, simply said, Thank you so much for everything you've done so far. I know that you know the company is in trouble, but will you please help me? Wow. Honestly, you could have heard a pin drop. These huge testosterone, what you hate, alpha male term people were there crying 
absolutely crying because this man asked for their help and they gave it. They didn't jump ship. They stayed with it and it lasted longer. Um, but that's the point. I think when we are coming from a place of authenticity and we're very genuine, um, I often say to my clients, if you're going to face the shareholders tomorrow morning and it's not looking good, don't go in there straight away with a spreadsheet. Start by saying, look, this is my vision. This is where I can see us going and I need some help here. And then you come out with the rest of it. Mm. It works much better. Yeah, that's, that's very powerful. So just on the final point, Linda, when we're talking about the brain, how do we get, how do we make it the most efficient? How do we put it into the most effective state? Because that's kind of what we've been talking about all along about being in a place where we feel the most efficient, the most effective. What are some of the things that you would recommend that people do? One of the most efficient things we can do for our brain <clears throat> is to be altruistic. When we, um, when we, think about others when we think outside of ourselves yes we put our own troubles in perspective but equally we stimulate chemicals one of which is nitric oxide nitric oxide is you can find it in food you can find it through exercise and nitric oxide what it does is it um it controls to a certain extent cortisol the stress hormone which means that dopamine serotonin and all the other field good transmitters work to their optimum as well and the best way of, of stimulating nitric oxide as i say is through kindness generosity and altruism which means that a lot of social psychologists will say to me well hang on a minute linda if you're getting something in return by helping somebody that's not altruistic but my answer to that is i don't care um, because when we are the human beings we know we should be then that's when the brain works really, really well. So when we are compassionate, when we think of others, then we are working as best as we can. And one other thing is to have fun. You know, we need to lighten up. I'm, I'm, you know, some of my work is extremely serious, but I don't take myself seriously. And I think that is a definitely a way that I have noticed that I work at my best cognitively and emotionally when I am not taking myself seriously and having a bit of fun with life. Yeah, no, that's very important. I think I was just thinking even there, you know, when people say, well, where can I start when you say, you know, I need to be altruistic. And, and one of those is to help, right. But you can start local, just look yeah. around you. I mean, just I'm on the Isle of Man. If I just look around, there's always somebody that you can help just even just walk, just walking down the street, you know, you know, be it that you that yesterday, just helping somebody cross the street that just couldn't get their wheelchair up on the ramp properly. I mean, just that in itself is just something that you can do. It doesn't have to be big, massive things is what I'm saying. Absolutely not. And equally, what a lovely thing to do as a family. You know, if you are, if you are there with, with, you know, stuck in the house, having with cabin fever um, with your kids, um, then, you know, for, you know that a neighbour actually needs some shopping. Go and get the shopping together for, you know, for them. Mm. You know, think, small things, just small things. That's all that matters. So as we come to the end of this, can you leave us with some final words of inspiration? What would you want people to leave with? Um, we're here for a very short time on this planet. Um, to have a reason to get up in the morning is extremely important. And it, I don't, it's, I'm mindful of the word purpose. I don't have a life's purpose. I've never understood it. I would like to have it because those I know who have a life's purpose, I think, oh my goodness, that's such a wonderful thing to have. But I don't, but I have a, small purposes, 
when my children were small, my purpose was, was whatever I had to do for them. And, you know, there are purposes in stages of life. So I think we always need to have a reason to get up in the morning and to look outside of ourselves and to help others. So that's what I'd say. And just have some fun. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.